Today is Friday, October 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. There are so many ways to connect to Thy Strong Word. I mean, you've already tuned in, so you know. But what about your friends? If they're in the St. Louis area, they can listen live on AM 850. But did you know we have listeners all over the world? They stream the show on KFUO.org or using their favorite podcasting app. So if you have friends or family that you know would benefit from thoughtful discussion around important topics in the Bible, invite them to give us a listen. Now, we have a busy show today, but I can't forget our gracious sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translation and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. And while you're online, send me an email. Ask a question, make a comment, or just say hello. It helps me to hear from you, because you too are a part of the conversation. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Well, today is Friday, so you know what that means. Not only are we live and open to your calls at 800-730-2727, but I also begin the show with a dip into the old listener mailbag. This morning, we have an encouraging note from a listener in St. Louis. They write, Thank you, Pastor Larry Bean and Pastor Boo, for your careful, thoughtful, and insightful examination of 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16 on the September 29th broadcast. You provided your listeners with the opportunity to pause, reflect, and reconsider a text that is often casually discarded as being mostly irrelevant to our culture and times. Well, thank you, faithful listener. That's what the program is all about. For those of you who have may may have missed that episode, it was called Beyond Ball Caps and Church Lady Hats. It it took a deep dive into how St. Paul's instruction that in the divine service women's heads should be covered and men's heads uncovered related to our worship life today. And as the title suggests, it's more than just taking off your hat in the worship space. Check it out or any of our other episodes you've missed in the archives at kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word. Well, our text for this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40, and it's not unrelated to that topic the listener wrote in about. It is all about order in the church. St. Paul writes, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Sometimes people think that the liturgy is rigid and confining, and yet its structure keeps the focus on the main thing, God's gifts of grace through his word and sacrament. So the apostle is bringing some order into the chaotic Corinthian church, and he concludes that all things should be done decently and in order. Well, To provide some decency and order to our conversation on this text today, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. Pastor Noor, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning and welcome to all of the saints who are listening to Thy Strong Word today. Thank you for the invitation and for this opportunity to speak about the God, not of chaos or confusion, but the comfort and hope of eternity. 
It's so great to have you on the show, brother. Now, I served in Connecticut for seven years before taking a call here in Laverne, Minnesota. So when I hear Hartford, I'm understandably thrown off. But you are the pastor of Trinity Lutheran in Hartford, South Dakota. Tell me a little bit about your ministry there and how God is working through you and the and the saints that he's put in your care. Well, I just before we do that, let me just I just got back from Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, I was there to install the newest New England DP, Bob Beinke. So I was privileged oh, yes. to hear about Hartford, and then I discovered there's Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, too. So, but my ministry uh, at Trinity in Hartford is blessed. I've been uh, there for seven years. The Lord uses me in spite of me uh, because he can use the donkeys behind. He can use me. So um, with that in mind, we realize that we are instruments. We are vessels. We have been put in a place to make the gospel known and the good news proclaimed into the ears and into the hearts of people. Trinity is a small community. It's ruler. We worship just under a hundred, but boy, the saints are on fire for the kingdom of God and the love of neighbor. And I'm privileged to be the shepherd of these little lambs of Christ. Well, we're privileged to have you on our program today to bring all of your experience and knowledge to bear on this text, which can be, well, I'll say it, it can be very controversial in some circles. But if we just take the text as it is, put ourselves under the authority of the Holy Scripture, let the Word speak to us, I don't think we're going to have any trouble. But I do think it would be a good idea for us to begin in prayer. And so I invite you to start us off with a prayer to the Lord. That's okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus, every letter, every iota of Scripture has been written by the Holy Spirit. You used ordinary men to tell an extraordinary story of the saving work of Jesus, the Lamb of God who left heaven to come to the dusty roads of Palestine and to ultimately sacrifice his life on the cross of Calvary as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we gather through the medium of the internet, telephone, all the other media possibilities, we pray that you would be the teacher that you would use us in spite of us, remove the wax from our ears, and teach us to trust that your word is the absolute truth. And with the hymnist we say, Now, Lord, open thou my heart to hear, and through your word to you draw near. To that end we pray in the name of him, of him who is the word eternal, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. And you're right. We live in an amazing time. Here you are on the telephone. I assume you are in South Dakota. I'm in Minnesota connecting over. Where are you at right now? In South Dakota. Sioux yeah. Falls to be I'm in my office at home. Oh. Uh, not my office. My office at my home. 
I understand. Yeah. Well, then you're very close to me. You're only 30 minutes down the road then from me. And so here I am just a little ways away, connected via the Internet. And we're all connected in St. Louis and going out over the airwaves to the radio. It's just amazing the the abilities and technologies and roots that God has given us to spread his word. And so I'm happy to do that today. Likewise, here. I'd Thanks like to be. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, if uh, if you'd like, I'd like to go ahead and get some of the text on the table so we can dig in. Please do. All right, here we go. I'm going to read just a few verses, verses 26 through 33, the first part of 33, and uh, let's uh, let's see what the Lord has to say. Paul writes, "What then, brothers, when you come together?" Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be, all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Well, that's the first part of our text this morning, brother. Um, you know, what what's going on here? We've been discussing St. Paul's letter for weeks now. And what we've learned is that there are a lot of issues in Corinth that he's having to address, and it seems like disorderly worship is one of them. Um, brother, you know, take us from the beginning here. Uh, what is Paul encouraging them to do? Well, thanks for that question. But let me begin by kind of realizing and emphasizing something that's very valuable for us as we read Scripture. We don't take... Uh, scripture out of context. Never do. There's something that comes before it, that something comes after it. So you have to look at it not independently, but as a part of a bigger picture. It's like a piece of a puzzle, but it's bigger than that. It's the whole picture. And here's what I would like to say. Chapter 14 is in the center. You have chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul ends with the greatest love story, right? He talks about these three, uh, endure, love, faith, and hope, and the greatest of these is love. Then we come to the next chapter, chapter 15, which is known as the Resurrection chapter, and Paul begins by saying, I give you what I have first received, that Jesus suffered according to the Scripture. So notice where the setting, how the Holy Spirit moved them to do it. So you have the love and you have resurrection, those twin sisters. And now he's talking to the Corinthian church that had no liturgy of any kind. Remember, they were not followers of of Yahweh of the First Testament. So in this setting, he speaks to those who lived, excuse me again, to those who lived and served in the temples over there, have a different kind of lifestyle, which I'm sure you have discussed throughout your first um, 13-plus chapters. And so now he's saying to them, because you have been loved, And because of the victory Christ has done, there's a special way to live as 
the followers of Jesus. And so when he begins, what then? Okay, that is so important, right? What then? Uh, in the Greek, when you have then, you can translate it therefore. Okay, and he's talking to Adelphoi's, which are the Christians, brothers. By calling them brothers, he's connected them with the word of baptism and the miracle that God has done in their lives. Now they are children of God. And what do we do with that? What has come before? Now he's coming to them to say to them, because of this, this is what we do. When you come together, that is, when you enter the presence of God, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. And then he highlights the caveat of these few verses by saying, everything that ought to be done ought to be for the building up of the kingdom. So the whole emphasis, whatever is going to be done in this place at this time, is to be done for one purpose and one purpose only, to bring the kingdom into focus, and so that everything that we do would not cause any any confusion, but in order so that people will learn who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he has accomplished for us. In the spirit, then, of making sure that we understand the context, because you're 100% right, um, take us through what he is describing, some of these ones that maybe we aren't completely familiar with, or if they miss the episode where we discuss them. For instance, uh, what does it mean to be a prophet in this context? What does it mean to have a tongue or an interpretation? Um, so take us through what exactly Paul is meaning yeah. by these words, because as we discussed it, you know, when we talked about it uh, in the course of our radio uh, program, we, uh, we, we had to define those terms. And I think that'd be a good review for the sake of context. Very good. Um, let me just say, too, when Paul is talking here, he's talking about a tongue or a revelation or something like that. You know, the whole purpose in verse 26 is to teach, right? So we are to teach the faithful in an orderly manner. But the tongue is the languages, uh, in the Greek, lale, is the language that we speak, or glosse, um, so Lale is to speak in the glossy tongue. So now I am fluent in other languages, which I can speak with you right now via the medium of my telephone, but it would do you no good because you have no clue what I'm saying, whether it's in Hebrew or in Arabic, correct? So when we are speaking about tongues, we need to remember it's the language. We're not talking about the charismatic movement that just started in the late 1700s and carrying right now that you need to be speaking in tongues to prove to people that you are spirit-filled. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is talking about the glossa, to speak a language that can be understood. So there's a, no, no confusion. And by, by, by prophecy, he's highlighting what is the role of a prophet? A prophet foretells what is to come 
or declare what has already happened. Okay, so when we profess something, we are proclaiming something that is valuable. So, like the prophet Isaiah, when he prophesied that a virgin is going to conceive, even though it was spoken already then, but. Um, you know, 800 years before Christ was born, but if it was as already was done. So he was prophesying and foretelling what's going to happen. Of course, that was fulfilled in Christ's time, but for the hearers, it was understood that this is going to happen pretty soon. And the same things right here, what you have, when you profess, when you speak, whatever it is that we do, we do it for the, for the sake of the kingdom. And so that there would be knowledge and understanding of that which is to be understood. It's not to bring attention to yourself, but it is to reveal to them the Savior of the world. It is almost like what Moses said in Exodus uh, 14:13, where he says to the people, they were just at the end of the um, sea, Red Sea, just on the shore of that, and the enemies of Pharaoh were coming, and he said to them, Fear not, for behold your salvation. And the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is to say, Look at Jesus, what he's going to do. So he was pro- prophesying these things. And this is kind of what the Apostle Paul has right here for us. So that when we speak, it isn't about name, it needs to be clear, it needs to be precise, and it needs to highlight Jesus, and thus we will edify the saints by building them up. In uh, in chapter 12, verse 10, he tells them about these different gifts that they'll receive. He says, you know, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. So by the time the, you know, he's addressing the Corinthians in this way because by the time Paul has heard about them, they have devolved into a chaotic, apparently, style of worship. The women were abandoning head coverings. They weren't being uh, very generous or, or equitable in the distribution of the Lord's Supper. They were misusing it, getting drunk, showing favoritism. And now it seems like people were just all trying to talk over each other. As you illustrated, the prophets, at least from what we can discern, it seemed like the, the people in this congregation who felt like they had the gift of prophecy – we're out trying to make a name for themselves and talking over each other. And so he's giving them this instruction, you know, just let two or three speak. And then, of course, let others weigh what is said. Let them examine what is being taught about Jesus, as you've said, and then let them make sure, according to the traditions and through the scriptures, that that what they're saying is true. Because the point is not to build ourselves up, to, but to build up others. And the same thing is about the revelation. You know, if someone should make some sort of revelation, it needs to be examined and then prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. But verse 32 says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, that's uh, that's a dubious phrase in the Greek. But uh, do you have an explanation of what Paul means by that? Um, I need to think it through. I haven't. 
I didn't spend a lot of time on that, so I don't want to speak out of context here because sure. I really need to. No, and I don't mean to put you on the spot either. I, I think some people would say that it has to do with them. You know, if, basically, if they're a real prophet, then the spirit that they have within them, they're going to be able to control it. Meaning, you know, you don't have to sit there and and it's an excited utterance. And if you don't say your prophecy immediately, that it's going to be lost forever. If you're a true prophet, then you're being encouraged by God, and you'll be able to deliver the message that God gives you. Right. And if you look at that verse, you have the, in verse 31, you know, he says, in order that we have the Hena clause there, so that all may learn. So the prophecies are not to be bringing any attention to ourselves. This is what I'm doing because I'm capable of speaking that, but simply so that the Spirit will lead. We always say, like I send words to some of my colleagues, some different people, lay saints, who are praying for me so that the Lord will anoint my lips. That's the whole point for the kingdom of God. But let me just kind of talk about the confusion and how that has infiltrated the church and how that disturbs the church. Okay, so I married an American lady. I'm a Palestinian born in Nazareth, fluent in Arabic and Hebrew and other languages. So I take the queen with me to the old country. The whole family, about 70 or 80 people, come to see the queen. And we are sitting around the house. And everybody's talking at the same time. So it's all in Arabic. And my wife, I'm sitting by my wife so I can translate for her what is being said. And she says to me, honey, how come they are fighting? And I says, I beg your pardon? <laughs> so loud. I, 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 it seems like they are angry with one another. They're fighting. I, I laughed. I said, oh, honey, we are not fighting. Unlike in the West, you sit with a group of people, one person talks, and everybody listens. In my culture, no way. So I sit across from you. I'm talking to you. My wife is sitting by me, and there's somebody on the other side. So she's talking to her. My uncle is sitting on the other side. He's talking to my dad. And everybody has to raise his voice a little bit higher so that you can hear the conversation. And that caused her confusion. I had to laugh because she says, honey, it sounds like you guys are fighting. I think that that is amusing because it sounds a lot like what was going on in Corinth. If, if a visitor were to stop into that congregation and hear everyone, uh, you know, talking over each other, yeah, they would think that the people are are crazy or arguing, especially if they didn't understand. If people were speaking in languages that they didn't understand, right. Uh, so when in verse 29, what he says, uh, let there be two or three to speak for the other, so let them discern. Well, if I begin to speak with you again, and whether it's in Hebrew or Arabic at this moment, what good is that going to do? It's going to cause you confusion. You're going to say, what is he saying? He's speaking about me or he's speaking about what? What is he saying? And so uh, the apostle Paul is being truly evangelical by saying whatever God's gift been given to you, use them for the building up of the church and don't confuse what is being said. Let me explain something. Have you ever gone to a doctor and he's telling you about issues that you have and then you look at him and say, I have 
understood nothing. Can you speak to me in layman's terminology? I've said that before to my doctor because he's telling me about the heart and all of these issues. So speak to me in ways that I understand. This is what Paul is talking about. Let's not outshout one another. Let's not try to pretend we know so many languages because he speaks later. I have more knowledge of this. I have more languages I can speak, but that's not the point. The point is when we speak, we are to allow people to discern the truth that is not hidden. The Bible is not a puzzle. Um, David said in Psalm 119, the word is a light for my path, right? And so Jesus calls himself the light of the world. We don't walk in darkness. We don't live as the people of confusion. That is not the God of chaos, no confusion, but the God of comfort. And he is the one who fills our hearts with peace. We are to encourage God's saints to listen to the word that to check it, even you and I, as we speak on thy strong word, which is a wonderful instrument, but I want the saints to open their Bibles and to make sure what you and I are saying is absolute truth in relation to what God has given to us. This is the beauty of what we have in Scripture. And this is the joy we have when we can, along with the pastor or a lay person who is leading Bible study, Let's see what does it say, comparing what comes before, looking at what comes ahead, and saying, oh, this is the sweet honey that is good for my soul, that's good for my heart. So whatever we tell people, and in this case, he's talking about if you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy it, but don't draw attention to yourself or reveal something that is ungodly or unsalutary, but that which builds up the kingdom. And the best way to build the kingdom up is from the ground up, rather from the top down. Okay, We build them up by giving them the good news of salvation, that Jesus is Lord. This is what we prophesy. This is what we tell. This is what we proclaim. This is what we confess. And this is what we do as his followers. That's such an important thing to remember, that the Bible, as you said, is not a puzzle. People often try to make the text of the Bible seem obscure and mystic, so that I believe, some of them, so that they can then interpret it according to the way they want. But even with that said, there are still passages that are somewhat unclear because either we've lost the context or people have twisted them to mean something other than what they should mean. And the text that follows in our uh, assignment for today, this morning, is one of those texts where there can be some uh, unclear parts that have been misinterpreted over the years. And it's important that people understand the uh, the truth of what it's trying to communicate. I tell you what, we are right at the break, Pastor, so I'd like to go ahead and take a pause and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Noor and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 on order in the church. We'll see you on the other side.
Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Now, Pastor, before the break, we had just finished talking about uh, verses, well, 26 through the first half of 33. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before I read the rest of our text for this morning? And, of course, we can address it all together as needed. Yeah, I would only conclude this wonderful portion of these six verses to say our role being as the followers of Jesus is to point others to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. It isn't about you, it isn't about me, but it is about the truth in his word. The word does not lie, it leads us to the right place. Uh, there's a cacophony of noises out there, but there's only one voice. And Jesus touches on that in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If we look at the scripture, even though sometimes it's unclear, there's other parts of the scripture that is very clear. Okay? That's how we interpret scripture. It's not a hidden, but it's reality. And so as we move to the next chapter, uh, next portion, not chapter, sorry, the next portion, which is sometimes difficult to translate or understand the context of it, but I will shed a little bit light on that as we dig deeper into this. Uh, first, I will let you go ahead and read it, and then we will talk about that uh, in the purpose uh, for our study today. Thank you. Well, I'll be reading from the second half of verse 33 all the way to 40. As in all of the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, brother. Um, so, he begins, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Uh, take us into that. Well, remember that the order of creation was man and then woman, right? She is the helpmeet uh, for Adam. And so, throughout all of Scripture, God had ordained a specific order. 
And he used prophets to study all of the scripture. And you will know there's only one incident where we have somebody who's uh, prophesied other than a man, and that's Deborah in the Old um, Testament. She was a prophetess, okay? We do not know that she ever spoke in a synagogue. We have never read anywhere that the Scripture teaches us. So why is it that women are to remain silent? It's not that they don't have a voice, and it's not that they are not um, gifted, because I've met women who are more eloquent than I am by far on many levels. But this is not the role God gave them. That role was given to the men because that's how God ordained things to be done. And when they are talking about that the women should be silent in the church, they are not to be preachers in the pulpit. This is what he's getting at. Uh, he said, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, let me just explain a little bit about culturally speaking. As you heard me earlier stating, I grew up in a culture different than the West. I grew up in the East, Middle East to be exact. Nazareth is where I was born. I uh, lived in Haifa. But I'm going to give one example of what it means for women are to be silent and where men are to be uh, the spokesperson. So my brother is going to be married. So what happens in my culture, all the men of the family, starting with my oldest uncle to all the men who are of age, 18 and above, whatever the number that may be, we all go to the bride's house, and there'll be nothing there but men. And we will speak by asking the hand of this young lady in marriage. Now, where are the women? They are in the kitchen. They are listening. They can come and say something later to one, or they say nothing until the group have left. In a similar way, in the culture of the Hebrew-speaking order of things, God ordained that women should not be in the place of authority in the pulpit, even though today it is practiced among many, many different churches. But it is ungodly, unhealthy, unbeneficial, and very disturbing. And here is the reason why I want to highlight this from my perspective, is that the person who is standing in the front responds by saying, in this stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins, right? I represent Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. So you have a bridegroom and you have a bride. So when you put a woman in the front to speak and to proclaim and to profess and to teach all of these things, what do you have now? You have lesbianism. You've got a woman representing Christ, speaking to the church with a feminine, and that causes confusion because you're supposed to have the bridegroom, then you have the bride. And in this way, he says to them, you be silent 
in the church. It's not that they're gonna, you can't say anything. You can. We do that in discussion in Bible study. They raise a question. We respond. We have uh, women who teach. They teach. That's wonderful. But in the pulpit, they should not be taking over the role that God had ordained. And this is what Paul is speaking. Remember, this church grew out from a different kind of culture. They were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And now he's teaching them, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how do you live within the parameter and the freedom of the gospel and how this gospel is going to be used to bring glory to God for the purpose of building up the church, the kingdom of God, and secondly, so there would be no confusion whatsoever, but peace may dwell in the hearts of those who are burdened by sin and to rejoice in the grace of God. When he says the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, I'm not sure how much to make of it, but I think it's worth noting that the Greek word used to speak there is laleo, which is typically the word for speak when it refers to preaching, at least in the New Testament, uh, as opposed to the more generic term of lego, which means to speak or to talk, uh, but it's just more of a general term. And so as you pointed out, but I want to make sure is clear to our listeners, the apostle and God himself is not prohibiting women to say things in church or sing hymns or or uh, even, as you said, teach a, a class to to people in the church. It's about the public exercise of those things which have been given to those who hold the office of public ministry. So to preach. Thank you for highlighting one word that I did not use. It is the public preaching, and I, I thank you for using that. I did not use it. I used the pulpit, but the public proclamation, and you are correct, as I stated earlier, we have women who teach in Bible studies or something like that. But this is not the discussion here. The discussion here is about the office of the ministry. It is not permitted for them to speak that way. That's not their place. As I said earlier, are there women more equipped, more gifted than I am? Absolutely. I've heard wonderful women speak, but that's not the gift given to them. God did not ask them to do that. And we are we can debate it all day and long, but I would stand on the word of God more than my opinion or yours. But the scripture is very clear. And any time you take away from the scripture there's consequences and when you put yourself in a place of authority okay uh, then you are causing havoc how can that be why is it only in the last 30 years that we had women become and i don't call them pastor uh, play the pastoral role as if they are able to do that. Why is it only in the last 30 years and only in America that it's going on? Because we are no longer holding to the truth of Scripture. We are holding to, it is my right to go to school and become and pretend to be on a pastor. 
Yeah, I I would argue, though, a little bit. I just push back just a little bit. I don't think it's happening just in America, though, but it is happening in other places. But for the same reasons that you that you say, um, because yeah, we've I, no because we've no longer put ourselves under the authority of scriptures. We toss out those scriptures that we feel like are uh, no longer applicable or something like that. And one of the uh, arguments is that there appears to be a contradiction in Paul's writings. In fact, in his this same letter. First Corinthians chapter 11, he says, but every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. And that's why I said it was related earlier at the top of the show to the to guest who or sorry, the listener who wrote in about when we talked about head coverings. And uh, if then the argument goes that Paul says it's dishonorable for a woman to prophesy without her head covered. Then the implication is it is then permissible for her to prophesy with her head covered. And then if you go down to First Corinthians 14 that we're discussing now, and he's talking about those who are prophesying should take turns and make sure you don't do it disorderly. And then he says, but all women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to preach, but should be in submission, as the law says. I think that's what they that's what they do. They say, well, look, here's a contradiction. And so they'll say, well, one of these must not be true or must not be right if there's a contradiction, and therefore we'll remove the one that's the more offensive one. And the more offensive one to them is the one that says uh, that women should not speak. They'll say, well, that was a later edition, or they'll say it doesn't, it doesn't match Paul's writings, or they'll come up with some exegetical excuse. But as you said at the top of the show, Tom, in terms of context, you know, we must always know that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that you know, even apparent contradictions are easily resolved if we let our reason be ministerial to the word as opposed to magisterial. In this case, I think there are plenty of ways that the conflict is easily resolved. It's not a conflict at all. But, you know, I did want to bring that to the discussion because that is some of the reasoning used for people who want to toss out this idea that, well, he clearly says that women can um, can prophesy. And so now this must mean something else. Or they refer to... Um, uh, you know, uh, in Acts where we have a, a woman teaching one of the men something and and he'll say, well, look, that's an example. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's where we get that idea. People now are looking at the Bible with what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion. They're always looking for ways to say, well, that part doesn't really count anymore. Well, let me just first uh, thank you for correcting me and arguing with me, because I haven't done any study internationally to see if there's any women, but I speak from my culture. Well, I just come back from Israel, and that hasn't come to the Middle East, but it could be in other places, Africa, or maybe even Europe. I don't know. So I'm corrected on that one, and I'll take the blame with 39 lashes minus one, uh, 40 <laughs> minus one. Uh, number one. Number two, um, and I'm sure when you guys discuss the covering of the hair, it's culturally, a context is king, right? And culture is queen, but Christ is the center. Thirdly, there are no contradictions in scriptures. There's only human uh, perspective that it is a contradiction. And thirdly, when people, men or women, begin to say that this is an addition, they have elevated themselves above the scripture. And the illustration I often use, and maybe you can follow along with my explanation here, if you take a, a Bible, set it on your hand, 
and envision that is your head. Your hand is your head. The Bible is above your head. You can use reason, R-E-S-O-N. I can use reason to read through the scripture. Excuse me. What people, excuse me, one more time. What people decide to do is they determine what is added, what is not. Now they take that hand and flip it on top of the scripture. And now it is no longer reason, but it is treason. T-R-E-A-S-O-N. It is treason because now you have called God a liar. And two, you elevated yourself above God because you say, oh, this was not in the original text. This was added later. How do you know that? This is what we have in the scripture. It's proven. We have the canonical books, all of these things. And we stand firm because God does not contradict himself. God is true, always faithful, always righteous, always pure, always holy. And he gives us that which is good. And to file, the final point on this portion, Brother Phil, is this. Whether we understand this completely or clearly or we don't, it does not take away from the salvation narrative and record that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He came and paid for the price of redemption on the cross of Calvary. That's the key. We may never know what Paul intended to say with these few verses, but it does not take away from the truth of Scripture, ever. We can debate, we can negotiate, we can communicate, but we know the truth, because the truth sets us free. This is from John chapter 8, 31 and 32. If you truly believe my word, you will know the truth. It will set you free. The freedom that we have, because we are not bound to my decision, but to what Christ has accomplished from the womb to the tomb and beyond, where he brought the light of the gospel to fruition so that we may understand and never be confused, but, but be filled with peace. To, to understand how much he loved us and, who he, uh, and how he makes the scripture alive in our hearts by the Spirit's power. Well, absolutely. You know, we look to the scriptures for insight and guidance, and the scriptures don't exist to answer all of our curiosities or questions. They certainly exist to point forward to Christ, the Messiah who was to come, and in the New Testament to point back to Christ who came. And we're thankful that through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit gives us gives us faith, strengthens our faith in Christ. You know, we believe what the Bible says, not because we've examined it and we say, okay, this all stands to reason, but rather we believe it because God has given us faith through the word. And it may seem circular to those who are outside of the Christian faith, but that's why Christianity is not a volunteer religion. And back to the major point of this particular text is while he does have this aside in regards to the women who are being disruptive in the church, he also wants to overall make sure that in the greater context of receiving spiritual gifts, that in the worship time, those spiritual gifts are being used for the benefit of one another, that there is good order, as he says in the last verse, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, with that said, 
the way that worship would have looked like in the Corinthian context is going to be different than the way that worship looks like today. Our worship in most Lutheran churches looks, and Roman Catholic churches for that matter, looks a lot like the medieval worship, which is based on the worship before it. Worship does tend to evolve over time, but what does not evolve is this necessity that it be done orderly, that it be done for the benefit of other people, that it be done to uplift uh, people in their faith, not put the spotlight on the person up front, not uh, you know try to build up ourselves, but rather to edify one another. But could you talk a little bit about, you know, since you have this experience in a different culture, we have just a few minutes left in the program. I'd love to hear about how Christian worship looks different in different contexts that you've experienced and how that order might look different depending on where you are. Well, I, as you heard me say, I grew up, uh, I was born in Nazareth, grew up in Haifa, and I attended the Catholic Church before I became a Lutheran. So in the Catholic Church, we practice pretty much the same as the Lutheran Church does. We had the priest doing all of the activities. He was speaking. Um, he may have had uh, some people reading the scripture, but primarily the priest did all of these things. We had nuns that did a lot of assisting, teaching classes, and all of these uh, activities. They were principal of the school, took care of the needy, uh, uh, administered help to the priest in many ways, but never in the office itself. Uh, I've traveled other countries as well, but I cannot speak as well about those as I speak about my culture and my people where I grew up. But the order that we have in the old country, because now I've been in this country for 50 years, is so different than uh, what was practiced. But we follow pretty much the same style of worship as the Lutheran churches right now. Well, excellent. So, you know, toward the end of this text, Paul, and he does this often, but it's so important that he does because he wants to remind both his hearers in Corinth and also his readers here throughout space and time where we are, that these things are not according to his own will. And when it comes to order in the worship or specifically the role of women in the public ministry, oftentimes I've also heard the argument that, well, this is just Paul being a bigot, being, a, you know, a chauvinist. Paul being a product of his own time is the more sympathetic understanding I've heard. But regardless, all of this is just Paul and his own opinion. And yet he says right here in uh, in verse uh, 36. Um, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached, speaking to the Corinthians as a whole? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if you don't recognize that, then you're not recognized. That's a little paraphrase of 38. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am not just telling you my opinion. This is from God. And that I think that's what you were saying earlier, too, about overarchingly, you know, the Bible is God's revelation to us. And and that's what's most important, that we not supplant our own opinions. And Paul wasn't either. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, when I was at the seminary, Dr. Uh, Louis Brighton, my spiritual father, uh, when he taught revelation, he says, don't you ever say a revelation 
you do that, you get an automatic F in the class because there are no other rebels since Jesus came. So that's number one. Secondly, fast forward to the next chapter, 15, where Paul says, I am giving you of first importance that Jesus Christ suffered according to the Scripture, that he died according to the Scripture. So the foundation, the concrete hope Paul has is in the Scripture. And, of course, at that time was the Hebrew Scripture. And, of course, he can speak. This was commanded by Jesus because he met him on the road to Damascus. If you remember Acts in Acts chapter 9, he was commanded. So he's saying the Word of God came. But not by visions or dreams, but Jesus personally appeared to him, and he spent the next 14 years studying the Scripture so that he might know. He was, he was away for three years silently, and then he began to study and grow to understand, because his eyes were covered, even though he had the Scripture, but he, he, he lived by work righteousness. Of course, that doesn't work because it is by grace. So we cannot add or subtract from the Scripture. There's no hidden puzzles in Scripture. It is as clear as day. We may not understand everything, but it doesn't take away from the main context of the hope of glory we have on account of Christ. And let me just kind of... Um, close this, I think we just got a few minutes here. But remember, he, he began to speak to the brothers, right? And earnestly, he says earlier in uh, the first uh, portion, what then, brothers? So he's talking to the Christians. Uh, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And then in verse 33, he talks about God is not the confusion. But let's Take a moment and look at the last two verses. It's kind of like the book ends. So he's, again, he's encouraging the brothers. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Okay? So he's not, he's not against people speaking in other languages. He's not against people prophesying. But look at this. But all things should be done how? Decently and in order. Now, the Greek is pretty strong here because he says, panta, let everything be done. Panta is inclusive of everything, all things. And you have the day, uh, which is a conjugation, he says, let everything be done in a good and godly and glorious way so that there would be no confusion. Whatever we do in the office of the pastor, it ought to be by equipping the saints, edifying them, and exalting the name of Jesus. It is always about him and what he has accomplished for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. So whether I speak in Hebrew, or I speak in Arabic, or speak in English, I ought to do it for the benefit of those who are hearing me, so that they can live at peace and joy, knowing full well they are the most beloved, beautiful, baptized, blessed, and blood-bought children of King Jesus. They ought to live with peace in their hearts, rejoicing at the good news God has given to them. That's your privilege. That's my privilege. It is an 
honor to be a pastor in the kingdom of God to tell the world what he has done so that others may kneel before him. And one day with all those who have gone before and those who will come to believe in him will be able to gaze upon the majesty of this God who became man. We can see his piercing hands and look at him as the only light that takes away all the darkness from our hearts. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the LCMS, representing the Great Plains. So he's my VP. Thank you, brother, for being on the show. Thank you, and God's blessings to you and all your saints and all of those who listen to us on the World Wide Web of KFUO. God blessings to you. Thank you, listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in Monday as we take up 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's all about the resurrection. We'll cover the topic over three episodes. There's a lot to discover. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.